serve that ancient of days that uh, rings true to me today. I've been studying for, well, obviously for now, but for tonight as well, where we continue uh, the attributes of God series. We did the, induct, the uh, introduction two weeks ago, and then Father's Day was last week, and this week we'll be looking or looking at the uh, the aseity of God. That's a huge theological word. It's about that long, but it means the self-sufficiency of, of God, who God is. We have to start there, and, and then we'll start to unfold the layers that is our Lord. But that song reminded me so much of what we're going to talk about tonight. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Eternal Being, the Creator God. And although He is eternal, and although He is outside of time, and although that He is the Creator of all, that all-powerful Ancient of Days reaches into time which He created and works with us. Crazy. But that's tonight. So, if that piques your interest, we'll be here again at 6 o'clock. Amen? But let it, let's turn to the book of John, chapter 14, for us today. And we are going to prepare for next week, where we start our next book series, the book of Galatians. Amen? And I want to talk to us today about what is true Christianity, because that is what Paul is combating in our book, True Christianity. John, chapter 14, starting in verse... One reads like this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Lord, we come to you again, Lord, as we open up your word and we endeavor to learn, Lord, of you. Lord, I ask that you Move upon us in the remainder of this service, Lord. Speak to us today, Lord. Give us that which we need to hear. Lord, minister to our hearts, for it is in You and You alone that any of this is possible, Lord. We ask this in Your name. Amen. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> Next week, we will, we will start our uh, walkthrough of Galatians, and I want us to look at the, the foundation, as you will. Why is Paul so adamant in writing his letter? Next week, as we do the introduction of the book, you'll see that the, the letter to Galatia is actually a letter that is meant to be spread across a wide, vast land. Galatia isn't a city, it's a, it's a region. So think of like sin law, why it isn't just Pineville or Alexandria, but Sin Law encompasses a few different parishes, a lot of different cities. Think of how many churches are in this Sin Law area. Hundreds, right? Thousands 
even. We are so blessed, but also cursed at the same time to have a church on every corner, some even in houses, some on street corners. There's places to go to be ministered to. And this isn't the only church that speaks the truth. I praise God for the men and the women both who speak the truth of God as they witness, as they are emboldened by the Spirit that's within them to speak truth in a world that hates truth. Amen? But why is Paul so angry almost at these churches in Galatia where he writes a letter that is not like any other letter that he writes? Uh, Paul has an M.O. about like how we write a letter, right? We have a, a name. This is Scott, right? We have a greeting, as you will. You have the meat of the letter, and then you have the conclusion of that letter. Paul writes a letter the same way where you see in Corinthians, first and second, uh, where you see in Thessalonians, his letter to Timothy, his letter to Titus. He says, hey, this is me. It's me. I'm writing this letter. I praise God for X, Y, and Z. You're doing great. Here's where you're not doing so great. Here's where I need to teach you. Here's how we can apply that. And by the grace of God, you're going to do this, right? The ending of a letter. But in Galatians, we're going to see, he says, Hey, I'm Paul, the apostle, not by man's hands, but by God's hands. And he gets straight into why are you doing what you're doing, right? He goes straight into the meat of the letter. Why is that, uh, why is that so? Because the very foundation of true Christianity is at stake in the region of Galatia, where they have, for once, were saved under Christ Jesus, the foundation of all truth. They had started to add things because wolves and sheep's colon had come in in the form of what Paul calls the Judaizers. And we'll see where Galatia isn't the only time uh, there was an MO. For Paul's ministry, where he would break new ground, he would go into a pagan city that has never been ministered to, and he would give the gospel, and God would work, and men and women would be saved, and a church would be established, and he would go on to the next region, and almost immediately, there would be these Jews that would come in and say, hey, you, you're following Jesus, that's great, we're followers too, but here's the law, here's the Torah, here's everything that, that you need to go along with that. That Apostle Paul that comes through, yeah, he's an apostle, but he's, he's more of a, a church planner, a starter. He didn't give you the full gospel. He got you in the door, but now if you want to stay in the door, this is what you need to do. And they incorporated what we call a works-based salvation which is impossible to keep. That's what the law said. Paul said it in his same way. The law was here for one purpose, to show us that we could not achieve holiness. Amen? But that there was one coming. No, there was one who has come. Amen? And His name is Jesus, the Christ. That may be a, a shot to some of y'all. Jesus' last name was not Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Jesus, right? I don't know if he had a last name. A lot of times all he did was Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, right? So I would be Scott of Centerpoint, son of Richard. That, that would be how we did it. So Jesus, his last name isn't Christ, but praise God, he is the Christ. 
There was many, listen, there was many who come before Christ and there's been many who has come after Christ who have said, I am the Christ, but there has been one. His name is Jesus and that is the foundation in which Paul did lay in Galatia and has to write a letter again and tell them, stop being the knuckleheadedness that you are. Go back to what you know. That's what he says. What, who has bewitched you, we'll see, right? You were doing well. You were running well. Why did you, if you were saved before and all you knew was Christ, how are you less saved now that you have all this other stuff? We'll see that relationship over religion is a huge thing for God. Relationship over religion is a huge thing for God. We'll see tonight that although He is above us and in need of nothing, He wants us. He wants relationship with us. The God of everything who is in need of nothing. Listen, He doesn't need us and that hurts our feelings. I understand. He doesn't need anything. He is no less God because you are not saved. He is no more God because you are saved. But by God and His grace, He wants relationship. Amen. We don't add anything to Him. We don't take anything to Him. But in a relationship, we are endowed with great, great things. Every good gift comes from who? The Father of lights. Amen. That sentence one in my notes. Praise the Lord. Basically, the ones who came after Paul, they said this. They said that faith alone in Jesus was not enough to gain heaven. That's what we're going to see. They say, you have a great start. My Lord, you are on the, whew, you are on the right path. You almost got this figured out. But here's a list. And if you can check off this list, then you're going to have it. Amen? Does that ring a bell with any of us? I know, I know we have our traditions and praise God for our traditions. Amen? But when the traditions of man start to usurp the authority of God, then we have a problem, right? Where my tradition, that is how we do things, right? When my doctrine starts to overpower the authority of God, then you start to have issues. That's what Paul was combating and that was his plea, no, his prayer to the region of Galatia and applicable to us today is do not, what does the Bible say? Forget your first love. Who brought you into this thing? If He brought you into it, He's going to be good enough for you right now. He's going to be good enough for you tomorrow. And He's going to be the one waiting on you in glory. Not your good works. Not what you have done or what you haven't done. Not what title you had before or after your name. Praise God for all of those things. Amen? But that's not what's going to keep you because that's not what got you. <laughs> Thank God. It, you say, is it that easy? Yes. That's what makes it so difficult for this world to understand. Let's be honest, that's what made it so hard for you. That's why you fought for however long you fought over this truth. It's got to be more than that. Just to say that I believe? Just to put my trust in a man's work? Yeah, but that man wasn't a mere mortal. He was God. 
It's who you put your trust in. Ladies and gentlemen, if you trust me, you're in danger. If I trust you to keep me holy, I am in danger. But if I turn my face to the Lord, if I stop what we call navel gazing and looking at myself and put my face fixed on God, I can do things that I never could have done before. When I bend my knee and say to myself, self, you are lesser than, then I can boldly approach the throne that the Word of God says and I can ask in His name any good thing. And guess what the Bible says? He gives those things to us. The problem is we're asking for things that aren't good a lot of times. But if you go before God and your answer Your question is, what would you have me to do? And oh, by the way, because I am a selfish being, Lord, if it it was cool with you, I sure would like to have this. I'm dealing with this, Father. I know you see me, and I'm endeavoring to see you, and you can see that I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that prayer. Bible says that we have not because we ask not, right? It also says we ask for a lot of things and those things don't come to pass because those aren't what is good for us. But when's the last time you asked God, Lord, just give me something. Give me what you desire for me to have. I may not fully understand it. I may not even know how to use it. But by God, if you give me the grace and the gift then you're going to make the way for me to use it. When is the last time that we've humbly come before the throne of God and just asked Him, what, what, what do I need to do? It's relationship. That's what makes this thing, this thing called Christianity different from every other world religion that is out there. Every other religion. Every other thing other than the God of this Bible says that God needs creation. God needs you to give Him prayer. God needs you to give Him glory. God needs you, and these are little G's by the way, God needs you to do something for Him. And when you really boil it down, what it's called is moral deism where I can become good enough to be with God. Now you go back to the Bible and the Bible puts us in a different position. It says you will never be good enough to be with me. So I sent someone. You could never do anything. Nothing you could ever do will get you to me. But I desire to have you. So I'm going to make a way. You say it's that simple. How How many of us, by a show of hands, if you're willing to be honest, has a hard time witnessing. Okay, so honestly. And that that hard time may be uh, several different things, right? I'm not good with talking with people. I I don't know what to say. I don't want to lead somebody astray, right? I don't want to become a stumbling block. There's plenty of different things. But the simple message of the gospel is just that. We're bad. He's good. He desires to make us good. And there's one way that that happens. If you can articulate that, the Bible says in the form in which a child could understand, salvation can be wrought. 
So, so if you have a problem with talking to people, maybe your prayer life should be, Father, I desire to grow your kingdom. I desire to be used in, to further your glory. Embolden me. Give me that which I need to say. He goes on in John 17. We're in 14 in John 17 in the high priestly prayer to pray for that such thing. He tells his disciples, they're going to take you. They're going to bring you to the courts. People are going to come against you. Great persecution is coming. Don't even work. Don't even sit down. This, this is hard for a preacher, but don't even sit down and write out what you're going to say. Don't worry about it. Just be a willing vessel to open his or her mouth when the time comes and the spirit within you is going to speak out. He's going to fill your mouth with what you need to say. You say, well, that sounds incredible. That's exactly what happened for Stephen. Stephen, listen, was a lay person. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a teacher. He was somebody in the congregation filled with the Spirit, willing to move, and working with widows. Literally doing the definition of what we call a deacon. He was servicing tables. Being everything that the apostles needed so that they could be about the Scriptures, right? Doing all the things that go unseen for a lot of people. Doing all the things that make all of this happen, but yet you do it in the shadows. That isn't saying in darkness, but it is out of the sight of men. And whenever he was brought before the Sanhedrin to denounce his faith, he opens his mouth and gives one of the hardest, most truest messages we have recorded other than probably Matthew 5-7. through And they killed him for it. And it emboldened a man named Saul to breathe out fiery threats to those who were found in the way. But see what Satan means for evil, we find in Acts, just a few chapters over, the man that's holding the coats to stone Stephen, the same man that saw Stephen stare up into the sky as he's being hit with stones, and even as he is being put to death, he opens his mouth again. And he doesn't say, I or ow or stop it, you're killing me. He knows what's happening. But he says, I see something. I see something. God has given me eyes to see, and I see something. And what he says is, I see my Christ. And listen to what he sees, because what does the Bible say? That he was crucified. He was dead three days and three nights. He resurrected. He walked among men. He ascended to what? Be seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, He is on His throne. He is in glory. But when Stephen seen Him, he says, I see. I see my Christ. And He's standing as if to receive. He knows he knows what you're going through. Stephen is about to pass from this life into glory. And Christ is already standing up to receive His servant. Amen. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That is, that is the statement of Galatians. That is what our Apostle Paul is trying to beat into our fleshly bodies is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is 
enough. He spends over two-thirds of his letter defending that statement. Jesus is enough. It's not in the law. Praise God for the law. It's not in tradition. Praise God for tradition. It's not in the covenant. They, they talk a lot about circumcision, but it's not in the old or the new covenant. Praise God for both of those. It's in the Christ. It's in the one who came and the one who will come again. So let us look for a few moments at verses 4 through 6. Because this is the foundation. This is where we're at. Christ starts off by saying, where I go, you know. That's a pretty good, a pretty good thing, right? Where I go, you know where I go. And you know the way. It's in verse 4. Jesus has told His disciples the way that He is going, but uh, His meaning is clear only in retrospect. It's super easy for us to read through the Gospels and understand what Christ was saying is, I'm going to the cross, right? That's what He said. I am going to make a way from you to you back to the Father. That is what I am doing. The disciples had no idea what He was really meaning. How do, you, how do you know that? Because we can see what Thomas says. Praise God for Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap. Old doubting Thomas, right? Thomas was bold enough to say what the other 11 didn't understand. He said, Christ says, I'm going, and you know where I'm going, and you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas goes, we don't know none of that. What are you talking about? How can we know? You've only spoken riddles this whole time that we've been with you. Like, unless you stopped teaching and turned and looked at us and said, this is what I just said, this is what it means, we have no idea what you're talking about. Thank God for Thomas, right? Teachers like a Thomas. Sometimes they don't, sometimes they do. But a Thomas is a student, right? He's a disciple. That's what, that's what disciple means. And for the teacher that are in here or those that are around teachers, you understand that your kids don't understand everything that you say. A lot of times they've got no clue. And every once in a while there's a Thomas who will raise his or her hand and go, what did you just say? Right? I was that guy in school. I could care less about everything until I heard this one phrase. Take a note. This is going to be on the test. Hey, teacher. What did you just say? Elaborate. Explain, expound on that, right? Don't just give me the answer. I'm going to the cross. What does that mean? Right? That's what Thomas is saying. You say we know the way, we, you say we know you, and you say that we understand. I'm telling you, Lord, I ain't got a clue. You know what you call that? Humbleness, right? A willingness to understand, but I don't, I can't get from A to B. You need to tell me that. Amen? He told his disciples, look in uh, John 10 and 11. This is the meaning. In retrospect, we can, we can tie these together, but he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 12, 23 and 24, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now imagine being a disciple in John 12 when Christ says that. 
you know, for us, we go, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about salvation for millions and millions and millions of people. No, the disciples went, what wheat? What are you talking? Of course, we know how wheat is grown. You got to strip some of the seed. You save some of the seed. You plant the seed. Of course, we understand agriculture. We're an agri- agricultural desi- uh, uh, design, like a culture. We, we know how to grow things. That's what we do. We do that pretty well. We know that a seed has to germinate. But Christ is saying, you, you missed it. I told you, you don't remember the wheat thing, right? Thomas is going, no, no, we've got no clue what you mean. But Christ spends what we have three chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, four chapters teaching, expounding upon that. And who we call doubting Thomas, the rest of those disciples grew immensely because one man was willing to say, I don't know, teach me. We're talking about true Christianity. I don't have it all together. I don't know. If I'm too religious, what comes out is, I've got it figured out. I do know. True Christianity says, I know what I know, and praise God I know what I know for, but I don't know it all. Teach me. Teach me. Now whether you are a child, or you're a teenager, or you're a young adult, or you're an elder adult, a well-seasoned person, whether you've been saved for a year, 10 years, or 50 years, you should be teachable. That's what the Bible says. We should be pliable, right? But what you find is when you are run by religion, or religion is your God, you are hard and you are indifferent and there's no need for teaching because I've got it figured out. Christ is saying, That isn't the way. He had nothing but quote-unquote bad things to say when He spoke to the religious leaders of His day. When it comes to a Pharisee or a Sadducee, He had nothing but rebuke. Very few, very few of them, two that I can think of, was able to be spoken to. Nicodemus come to him at night because it was against his religion to speak to this man. And although he didn't fully understand, he's pliable. He's searching. He's looking. Right? The synagogue leader, the one with the issue in his home. You say issue? Yeah, his daughter's dead. That's a pretty big issue. Right? Comes to him, comes to Christ against religion, against tradition, because he's now going to another Jewish man to say, please come into my unclean home and look at my unclean daughter. And he says, I I need you. I need you. Listen, church, whenever you fall under this true Christianity, the same world that persecutes you when problems come is the same world that is coming to you because they understand you've got something that they don't have. Are you the kind of person that can look another person in the face that's been shaming you on Facebook, that's been running your name in the dirt, that has been just outright against you, and with love in your eyes, listen. Because they're coming. And it's those moments 
that God uses. It's those means that God uses to make a heart pliable. Why would you listen to me? I've been nothing but horrible to you. Yeah, I know. God still loves you. Easy to say, I understand. But that's what true Christianity is. Even if we have to grit our teeth sometimes and go, Lord, not that one. That's most of the time the one that's coming to you because guess what? Not only is He working in that life, but He's also working in this life too. Breaking bearables, making me more pliable because what I use this mouth for, I have responsibility still in this sovereign God's world. What I use this mouth for, I can use it for peace or I can start wars with it. I can edify or I can tear down. I can speak forgiveness. True Christianity. You know the way. That's how Christ starts this off. He says, Lord, we don't know the way. Show me the way. And then Jesus, it's one of the I am statements of John. There's several of them. It's a great study to look at. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Barclay says this about Jesus being the way. If we ask for the directions and someone tells us, to turn left here or turn right there, we are likely to get lost because we don't know where we're going, right? I thought about this. Some of y'all probably don't understand growing up in the Google's world, but there used to be a thing called an atlas that you carried around in every vehicle ever, right? It was about that thick, and you could get it for regions, right? You could get it for the whole state. Uh, and I remember my parents, obviously I was too young, my parents driving and dad driving and mom almost covering the entire windshield, like unfolding this thing, right? We're trying to figure out where we're going and I'm in the back seat going, dad can't even see the car in front of him. Like what is going on? And then in my generation, we excluded the Atlas and we had what was called MapQuest where you could get on this thing called the internet and you could type in the destination you want to go and it would print you out some directions. I see some smiles. Man, that was the cool. You have no idea. That was the coolest thing in the world to go. I don't know where I'm going. Right. Get in a vehicle and sometimes drive two or three days. And you just went like page one. OK, page two. OK, page three. And you hoped you hoped that the like the the roads were there because nothing was updated. You hope that they hadn't changed the name of the streets because you had no idea what was going on. Right. Sometimes you would get a state or two away and realize, hey, I typed in the wrong address. Like, I don't even, I'm in Missouri. I'm supposed to be in Texas. I don't know where I'm supposed to be going, right? And then today, all we have to do is speak to our Siri. Siri, tell me, tell me how to get to McDonald's, right? Like, we have no idea. And what we've had is a dumbing down of our society, even though we have so much information at our fingertips where the other day, I'm not going to say his name, but we have somebody working with us and, and, and he, he's just, he's in school and he's grown up in this world and he has no, he has no idea. He's, he has no idea where he's at, right? Our job is to get a piece of paper and go to somebody's meter and look at it. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know what is 1207. Like, I don't know what that is. I don't know any of this stuff, right? That's what we live in today. Whereas with an atlas, you learn mostly because you didn't want to deal with the thing, right? Couldn't ever get it folded up right. Things was crazy. Jesus is the way. 
He says if you're given directions to a place you don't know where you're going, there is an opportunity for you to get in the way. Right? For things to go awry. But that is not what Christ did. He said, however, if the person leads us to the direction, we are assured of getting there. Listen, if we fall behind somebody who knows where they're going, we have a lot better, lot better chance of getting to that destination. That person becomes for us the way, right? I can tell you how to get there, but why don't I show you the way? Okay? Jesus does not simply point us to the Father, but He Himself is the pathway to the Father. He doesn't just say, hey, God's where you need to be. It'd be way better than that other place, right? No, He says, let me take you there. Let me show you the way. Better yet, I'll go before you and I'll prepare a way for you to go. There's no thickets. There's no wrong turns. There's no misnamed streets when you're following after Christ. If there's a blockage, He makes a way. If there's an impassable place, nothing's impossible with God. He is truth. Truth sets us free. That's in John 8, right? The truth sets us free. Jesus is the truth made flesh. He's not a truth. He's not carrying a truth. He is the truth. John starts his gospel off by saying what? Jesus is the Word. Okay? He is the Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God the Father. The disciples said, show us the Father. Talking to Christ, and He rebukes them and says, you haven't learned anything. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. The epistles go even further than that and tell us that Christ is the manifestation of the invisible God, the God that is impossible to see, we can see Him in Christ. If you've seen me, Christ said, you're looking at God. That should have scared the pants off of the disciples. They didn't fully understand, right? Sometimes we don't either. When you look face to face with Christ, it was said this morning in, in Sunday school, the first time I saw God, I love the way Brother Matt said that. I didn't see Him. I saw me for who I truly was. It scared me to death. But at the same time, simultaneously, there was a love and an understanding that I've yet to fully understand that I'm perfectly okay with Him. Peace is what we call that. John 14, 17 through 18 says, that Jesus is the truth made flesh and He's not going to leave us alone, but He hands us over to the Spirit of truth. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you. Listen to this. You have to understand where we're at. Christ hasn't died yet. He hasn't ascended yet. He hasn't sent the comforter yet. Okay? But think about this in your life because this struck me so hard. Christ has been pursuing you since before you were in your mother's womb. That's what the Bible says, that He knitted you in the mother's womb. He preordained your steps, the places that you go, the boundaries that you go. 
what happens in your life, who you're married to, your relationships. Everything is preordained because He is both now and was and is to come and everything is created in Him, by Him, through Him, and for Him. All of it is His. That's tonight. But there was a moment in your life that you wasn't saved. Right? None of us was born saved. Bible says that. We're not good. We were born into sin, shaped by iniquity, right? So there is a time in your life, a season in your life before salvation. There is salvation, and now here we are today, hopefully for all of us here. Hopefully we are all saved. If not, this still applies to you. But in that, in that moment of time before salvation, the Spirit of God was on you. You go, uh-uh, I was horrible. Yes, you was, but you were still being directed. There's still this thing called common grace that is given to all men. God was leading you through your bad decisions to a point of salvation. So listen to what Christ says right here, John 14 and 17 through 19. I'll start it over. That is the true, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. You hadn't received the Spirit because you didn't know Him. You were in the world, right? But, do a word study on but in the Bible, B-U-T. Not rear end, but. That word is strategically placed in a lot of great places in the Bible. But, you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Listen to what He's talking about. He's saying, I got to go. I'm preparing a place. You know where I'm going. The disciples are saying, we ain't got no clue. And he says, I understand all that because up until this point, I've been with you. But now we're going to be in you. That's where we are today. That's where the church at Galatia was. Christ had entered into them. We're after the ascension. Everything is finished, right? It is finished. This is a new covenant world. Everything is different, but yet everything is always the same because Christ never changes, right? God never changes. John 14, 17 through 19 right there gives us a glimpse from a timeless God into creation, into time. There is a moment out of time, which is, it's great. you can't think of timelessness. We'll talk about that tonight again as well. But... The Spirit of God is on you, and there's a moment of time when He's in you, and then that moment of time never changes until glory. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, right? This is what Christ is saying, verse 19. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. That's some truth. Why is that, why is that so? Well, because He's also the life. He's the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. For the Jewish people, the Torah was the book of life. For us, this is the book of life, right? It instructed people in life-giving faith and practice. That's what we're going to be talking about in Galatians. It's faith put to practice, okay? The world practices sin. We practice holiness, The world is a lot better at sinning than we are at being holy, but what do we practice? 
Amen? Faith put into practice. Not the fact that you're working for faith. See, we need to put it in the right place. But faith put to practice. I trust in the faith that I have put in Christ, so I work. Right? I trust that what He said was true and is true, so I am going to be rewarded. So I work. Because I can't be rewarded if I don't work. But none of that has to do with salvation. I can't even work. I'm not even employed in the field until there's faith. Right? I can walk on somebody's field. I can start plowing. And all that person is going to get is some free labor. It does me absolutely no good. Right? In today's world, it may actually get me in prison for doing work on somebody else's field without their knowledge. Because that's called trespassing. It's a bad thing. Can't do that. Right? Court costs. Not only does it not benefit me, but it costs me. Listen to me. Religion, same way. Does not benefit you one way or the other. And it costs you joy, peace, long-suffering. It causes you to be hard. It causes you to be indifferent. It causes you to exclude people instead of include people. It causes you to not bear witness for Christ because God's got it. Don't worry about it. It causes grief. The phrase dwelling places in John 14 and 2 is uh, to be defined in terms of relationship. And here Jesus is defining life as relationship. You have me, so you have life. You are in relationship with me, so you have life, right? In his high priestly prayer in 17 and 3, that's what he says. This is eternal life, that they should know you, speaking of God the Father, the only true God, and Him whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Through the centuries, listen, countless Christians have validated Jesus' claim. We haven't proven anything, but all we've done is validate what Christ said. We've become followers of Christ and in such a way that His words have become true. Jesus delivered us from our addictions, our false hopes, our sinful desires. He loved us while we were yet sinners, as Romans 5, and provides us a way back to the Father. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and they both die, and Lazarus is welcomed into Abraham's bosom. The rich man wakes up in hell, and he can see across this vast gulf, and he screams out with everything that he has, give me a drop of water so that I may have it on my tongue. And Abraham's like, even if we could, or even if we would, we can't, right? There's a chasm. You can't come here. We can't go there. It's horrible. It's horrible. So then he says, well, send Lazarus back. Let's send him back to tell my family because this is a horrible place. And Abraham goes, sorry, can't do that either because they've had the prophets and they've had the law and they've had the signs and the wonders, and you can keep adding everything that Christ did, everything that has happened in church history, all of this, and they don't want to know. So somebody raising from the dead 
Is that going to provoke them? Listen to who Christ is telling this story, right? He understands what's about to happen. And there is still, it's craziness. His own disciples, he's raised from the dead. And they're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about all that. But Christ said, listen to the promise. He says, you will know. You will know. You're going to see. God desires. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. That's what Paul is going to reiterate. That's it. He's it. He is the way. There's no better way. He is the way. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There is only one life, right? It's in Christ. So let's stand this morning. God desires for us to follow after, to strive towards, and to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. By no other means will we ever reach heaven. By no other means will we ever be good enough to gain God's Favor it is and has always been about someone else's righteousness, not ever our own righteousness. We do not have the ability to right our wrongs. Only through Jesus are our sins forgiven. Only by the blood of the perfect are we made perfect. Only by Jesus do we gain access to the Father. Only by the wounding of our Lord are we finally and totally and eternally made whole. That's the truth of the Word of God. That's what we're stepping into when we step into what is the, the not the worst church of the time, but a church that's in battle, that's in spiritual warfare, that is in danger of taking their eyes off of Christ. Right? Let's bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank You. For Your Word, Lord, we thank You for the ability to gather, Lord, in Your name. We ask that You move upon us, O God. Lord, that You ready our hearts, Lord, that You open our eyes, that You give us ears, O God, as we look into this letter, Lord. Help us as we endeavor to apply, O God, the truths that is found in this book. Lord, help us to... Be about your business, Lord, to set our eyes, to fix our gaze back on what it is to be truly Christ-like, to be true Christians in this world. Oh God, Lord, help us to understand that although this world is as bad as it's ever been, Lord, that we're not placed out of time, that we are made for such a day as this. Lord, and help us to be emboldened in that. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.